Right, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Ben Williams, and of course, you know already, I'm a physicist. Now, physics is sometimes described as the science of extremes, the science of the very, very big and the very, very small, and Azim illustrated that really well. But I'm afraid, if that's what you've come for, I'm going to be a bit of a disappointment for you. I'm afraid I don't know anything about stars, and the universe as a whole is a bit of a mystery to me. But I don't really know anything either about um, accelerators at CERN and subatomic particles, and I wouldn't know where to begin looking for a Higgs boson. I'm a physicist of the middle, if you like. I'm a condensed matter physicist. Condensed matter just means solids and liquids, and that's what I look at. And condensed matter physicists basically look at the world around us on a more human scale and look for interesting phenomena in ordinary and rather everyday matter. So it sounds a bit boring so far, but I'm going to try and prove to you that it's exci as exciting for the 21st century as the idea of turning lead into gold was to the alchemists of the 17th century. So to illustrate that, I've got a picture of a 17th century Dutch alchemist in his workshop. And uh, I did actually want to show you at some point a photograph of my lab. But then I realized it was going to be a bit embarrassing, because it's a little bit of a mess at the moment. And it looks really quite a lot like this painting. There's the professor at the front, not really paying too much attention to what's going on in the rest of the lab, and just tinkering with a small experiment. Then it's very cold, so you've got a heater. And at the back, there's a fume hood, just like the one we have in our lab, where the students are preparing to blow themselves up with some <laughs> dodgy experiment. Unfortunately, we don't have a lab dog, but I wish we did. Now, I've picked a Dutch painting, which is probably quite appropriate, because the story I'm about to tell you begins in the Netherlands just over 100 years ago. It begins in Leiden with this guy, Heike Kameling Onnes. He was a Dutch physicist, and he was an expert in making things very, very cold. He was an expert, a pioneer in refrigeration. And by refrigeration, I don't mean your kitchen fridge at home. I mean really, really cold. So your kitchen freezer might go down to minus 10 if it's really quite cold. And the coldest temperature ever recorded on Earth was about minus 80 or minus 90. That was a cold day at the South Pole. The temperatures I'm going to be talking about are minus 200 degrees Celsius and lower. We know that there's an absolute zero of temperature, the lowest temperature one can achieve. That's minus 273 degrees Celsius. And some of the temperatures I'm talking about are right down there. That's what Heike Kamelingonis was aiming for 100 years ago. He was a pioneer, as I say, of refrigeration. He was the first person, in fact, to create liquid helium. And helium liquefies at temperatures only 4 degrees above that absolute zero, so minus 269 degrees Celsius. Really, really cold. So he asked all sorts of questions about cold things. And one thing that was interesting people 100 years ago is what happens to metals when you cool them down? In particular, what happens to their resistance? That is to say, their electrical resistance, the property that prevents a current flowing freely in the material. Now, it was known that at slightly low temperatures, when you cool down a metal, its resistance decreases. And it decreases roughly linearly, a bit like this graph that I've drawn here. So the question really was, what happens next? What if you go colder? Now, some theorists suggested it looks so linear now, why should it stop? It'll probably just keep going down to zero in a straight line. But then some other theorists said, no, no, that's ridiculous. Because as you cool it down more and more, the electrons, which are carrying the electrical current, will start to freeze at some point. They won't be able to move anymore. They won't be able to carry that current. 
So the resistance will go through the roof. Okay, so it looks like that. So Heiker said, I'll settle this. I'll measure it for you. And he took some mercury, because he could purify it very easily, and he measured the resistance through it as it cooled down, and he cooled it down to very, very close to that absolute zero I was talking about. And he saw this, the blue line, which is very strange. What he saw is at a certain temperature, the mercury loses all its resistance altogether. That means that when you start to pass a current through it, there's nothing to stop the electrical current moving. If you make a loop of this material, a superconductor, it will carry the current forever with nothing to stop it. And in fact, people have created experiments about 30 or 40 years ago with a loop of this superconducting material, started a current moving in it, and as far as anyone can tell, it's undiminished. Now, that's, it's, at the moment it sounds a little bit esoteric, but it has significant practical applications. And I can illustrate that with a picture of two pieces of wire. Now, coming back to Nazim's talk again, these are actually coming from, these are two pictures, uh, a, sorry, a picture of two pieces of wire from CERN. One of them is copper cable, and it carries a current of 12,500 amps. Now, to illustrate that, the largest current you get coming out of the socket at home is about 13 amps, and that's enough to kill you. So 12,500 is huge. And you need a lot of copper to carry it. That bundle of cables is about that big. And you need space in between for cooling water, because the copper gets very hot, because it has resistance. So as you pass current through it, it heats up. Now, by contrast, below that, there's a ribbon of superconducting cable. It carries the same current, but you can see it's tiny. And it doesn't get hot, and that's because it has no resistance. It is superconducting. OK, so why are these useful? Well. Um, these two pieces of wire are not just for carrying current, they're actually for generating a magnetic field. Hang on a moment, we were talking about electricity a moment. Why am I now talking about magnetism? Well, you may remember from your school physics lessons that wherever you have an electric current, there's an associated magnetic field. And that can be very useful for us in engineering. So here's a scrapyard electromagnet used for separating iron and steel from other materials. And if we've got a really big current, because we've got no resistance, we can have a really big magnetic field. And that has allowed technologies like this, MRI scanners. Now, you may know that an MRI scanner has a huge magnetic field in it. And that's made possible by the loop of superconducting cable, which runs in that big donut shape that you lie inside. In fact, this is quite important for the economy of Oxfordshire as well, because the largest factory in the world manufacturing MRI machines is in Ancient, not very far away from here. So you can see that it has practical applications in healthcare, practical applications in experimental physics, but there's one more way it could be useful, and I'm going to try and illustrate that here with a little demonstration. So I mentioned that you can get really big magnetic fields as a consequence of superconductivity. I also mentioned that in order to get something to superconduct, it has to be very, very cold. So I've got here some liquid nitrogen at minus 196 degrees Celsius to cool things down a bit. OK, you may have seen some of this before. There's my liquid nitrogen. Is it in shot? It's in shot. And this is a piece of superconductor. It's actually, it looks rather boring. If you get up close, it's just a piece of black ceramic, not very unlike a bit of teacup. 
And I, it, it doesn't actually allow much current to pass through it at all. It's got a really high electrical resistance. So it's a very unpromising material to find some interesting properties in. But if I cool it down a lot by dropping it in the liquid nitrogen, we'll see a change. Now, I should say to start with, I've got another piece of superconductor to illustrate it. When I bring this superconductor near some magnets like I have on this track, nothing happens. It's not interesting at all. It doesn't stick like iron does. But as I cool this down, and when it gets cold, I'll be able to show you something very odd. Remember what I did a moment ago? Nothing happened when I put the superconductor near the magnets. Now, oh, it's not quite cold enough. Okay. I have to wait for it to stop boiling, at which point the superconductor has reached the same temperature as the liquid nitrogen. So that's minus 196 Celsius. Now, something weird happens. There really are no strings, I promise you. No tricks of television here. Okay. So that's weird enough. And that's happening because there's a magnetic field associated with that little piece of superconductor now. But I want to show you how it gets even stranger and how we can use this for a fun little technological trick. So I'm just going to cool the other piece down. And while I'm at it, I should explain that uh, this track is made of very, very strong magnets made out of a substance called neodymium, some of the strongest permanent magnets that you can buy. Okay, I've cooled down my second piece of superconductor. I'm just going to put it inside a little foam boat to keep it cold and then show you a little bit more magic. So I have to let it warm up a, a bit, little bit again until it's no longer floating. That should do the trick. And I'm going to cool it down while it sits on these little plastic supports. Now, you saw before that it stayed levitating above the track, and it's still doing that. Can you see the gap? But now, something even stranger we can use the magnetic field to make it stick upside down as well. Is that coming out on camera? I'll try it once more so you can have a close look. Now you can see this is pretty cool. And it's pretty hard to get any work done on an ordinary day as a condensed matter <laughs> physicist when you know that you've got this on your desk. So there it is again. The right way up floating above the track, and the wrong way up, suspended below the track. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, this isn't just a toy. In Japan, there's an entire train set, full size, a prototype, which ha actually has the world speed record for the fastest tracked vehicle in the world, 360 miles an hour. And it's actually hoped that this will be the transportation of the future. Because the advantage of staying off the track is there's no friction with the rails. And it goes round and round really fast and just keeps going. OK, so that's a little bit about what superconductors are, but how do they work? Well, this is the rub. 
And I'm afraid I can't tell you too much about it because we don't know all the details. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm a condensed matter physicist. We want to know how these things tick. We know it has something to do with the fact that the electrons carrying the current pair up and team up to avoid the obstacles that are causing the resistance. And that is part of the motivation of superconductivity. But we don't really know quite how that pairing happens. So people like me, and Amy's been involved in it as well, and other people in this department use all sorts of techniques, high magnetic fields, and actually some particle accelerators as well, to try and probe those pairing mechanisms. I'm afraid we haven't got to the bottom of it yet, but when we do, the hope is that we'll come up with a superconductor that works at room temperature and doesn't need to be cooled down. So the, the future, as I envision it, in the future you'll come to this talk and then you'll all go, go away again in superconducting levitating cars. Thank you very much. <laughs>